1: That's Audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500
0: This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week, we come to you from Cape May in New Jersey, and in particular, the Congress Hall, a historic hotel in Cape May. In fact, in the 18 years we've been doing this show, this represents the third time we've come back here because they have got so many great stories to tell. For those of you who don't know Cape May, we're going to talk about that on the show, of course. But if you don't know the history of the hall, it was actually built back in 1816 as a wooden boarding house on the new seaside resort of Cape May on the Jersey Shore, and guess what? It then burned to the ground in Cape May's Great Fire of 1878, but by that time, it had really Caught on, and within a year, its owners had rebuilt the hotel in brick. And after that point, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, Ulysses S. Grant, and Benjamin Harrison vacationed at Congress Hall. And in fact, it was Harrison who made the hall his official summer White House. So it became of great importance for several months every year. And here's a little piece of trivia you probably don't know John Philip Sousa regularly visited Congress Hall with the U.S. Marine Band. And you know what's coming next? He composed the Congress Hall March which he conducted on its lawn back in the summer of 1882. And then the hotel had a rather ridiculous transformation. During the 20th century, the, the whole Cape, Cape May seafront deteriorated and in 1968, Congress Hall was purchased by a religious group. It became the Cape May Bible Conference and then a lot of other hotels were being demolished but then the Bible Conference sort of fell in disrepair and along with the hall of course, the par- the property was then partially restored uh, by the guidance of Curtis uh, Bash- Bashaw and we've, we've talked to his family before and now Now it's back as a fully functioning high-end resort hotel, and that's where we find ourselves today.
3: You know, there's so many different stereotypes of New Jersey, none of which apply to my next guest. She's a a Jersey girl, but for the last 36 years, unbelievable, 36 years.
4: 36 years, yes.
3: New Jersey Audubon. (sighs) Mm -hmm,
4: Absolutely. You're a birder. I am.
3: Her name, Dale Rosalette. How are you?
4: I am very well, thank you.
3: People, some of my friends are completely committed birders especially where I live in New York on Fire Island. Oh, sure. They're out there by the lighthouse, and they know exactly when to go. They know exactly where to be. I mean, you can learn a lot because it's one thing to just stay in one place and see what comes by. And if you wait long enough, it's like great photography. If you wait, you get it. Absolutely. And that's yes. what happens here.
4: Really, um, in Cape May, it's just an amazing place uh, because of where New Jersey and Cape May are situated in what's called the um, Atlantic Flyway, which is the bird flyway along the east coast. Um, It's all about about location.
3: So they're coming or they're going.
4: Exactly. They're migrating through New Jersey, going north, or migrating through New Jersey, coming south.
3: Plus, you have birds that... Don't migrate at all?
4: They are birds that that stay here as well. So New Jersey has one of the biggest bird lists in all of the states across the country.
3: Okay, without going through all of them, how many are we talking about?
4: Oh, about 450 different types of birds that have been recorded in New Jersey. That's different species of birds. Wow. Yes.
3: And that's that's how many have been recorded? Correct. But where we are right now, when we are right now, Mm -hmm. how many birds are around us right now? Uh, last
4: types. okay, Well, last weekend was our uh, New Jersey Audubon's big world series of birding, 24-hour competition from people coming all over the country and the world to participate in this event. There were about 255, 258 different species of birds in New Jersey last weekend.
3: Is it fair to ask which one is the most interesting?
4: No, it's not fair to say that because everybody has their own favorite bird. And yours would be? Uh, oh, I don't have one. <laughs> you
3: can't see that.
4: <laughs> yes, I can. I like them all. So I like I like birds that I can see in my backyard. I love watching American robins because they're so familiar. But I also like seeing things that you can see out here on the Cape May beaches, like black skimmers, which are a type of turn. And they, they skim across the water until their bill encounters a little fish and then their bill snaps closed. They're beautiful to watch. So I think... Bird watching not only connects people directly with nature in their own communities, but it also provides them with the opportunity to go someplace else to see what they have never seen before.
3: And how did you get started?
4: Uh, I got started unofficially, probably in third grade when I found <laughs> a dead indigo bunting and I wanted to figure out what it was. But I didn't really start birdwatching as a profession until I was an adult.
3: But you just woke up one morning and said, this is it?
4: No, I got married. My husband and I do bird watching together. Um, He's a wildlife photographer. I started working for New Jersey Audubon, and it was a natural thing to do. So it's just really been very enjoyable, has taken us to many wonderful places, and we don't like anything more than our backyard.
3: I'm assuming you have a feeder in the backyard?
4: We have feeders in the front yard. Um, and uh, But probably more important than the feeders is making sure that you have uh, things, natural food for birds. So I would say thinking about, um, you know, uh, uh, flowers for hummingbirds or other pollinators or um, tree, na- native trees that produce uh, berries or seeds or things that the birds can eat. You know, supplemental feeders are fine, but not necessarily the priority.
3: You really have to do your homework.
4: You do. You do. And I mean, Cape May, which is really great. So New Jersey Audubon runs two uh, centers here in Cape May County. Uh, The Cape May Bird Observatory um, is one of our signature centers as well as the nature center of Cape May. Um, Anybody that visits Cape May can uh, stop by either one of those centers. The really cool thing about Cape May is that um, migration in New Jersey, a bird migration, doesn't happen during the time necessarily that everybody's sitting on the beaches. It happens in the spring and in the fall when um, uh, Cape May is not nearly as crowded. So it's a really great time to come and see birds during April and May, September, October, and November. All around the world
5: there be a rapid change
2: in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant
5: $75.63.
3: And for those of you who are regular listeners to the show, you know, wherever we go, wherever we broadcast from, I always invite one of the fire chiefs in the community on the show, For a very simple reason. They're the best resource of information you can ever find. They've been in everybody's hotel. They've been in everybody's restaurant. They've been in everybody's house. They know where to go. They even know where not to go. And, yes, they know where to eat. They do. My next guest, the deputy chief right here at Cape May, Rick Lundholm. How are you, sir? Fine. How are you? You've been on the department 31 years. That's correct. So you've seen all the changes.
6: I've seen all the changes, yeah.
3: Now, we were just talking off air that on my department, for those people who don't know, I'm also a fireman in New York. Mm-hmm. In my department, we still do something that nobody else does anymore. We still ride on the back of the truck. You started that way, didn't you? In
6: 1988, we were able to do it, and it only lasted a few years before enclosed seating and seatbelts and all that well, came we're into We're still
3: flying by the seat of our pants on our trucks because we're on an island right. on the beach. But Cape May, very much like where I am on Fire Island— you have your challenges.
6: We do. Wood frame houses. Wood frame houses.
3: Wind from the ocean, mm-hmm. right? Water pressure. All the things that <clears throat> that we have. Many city fire departments will fight a fire offensively. My department, just based on what we're challenged with, we fight it defensively, right? We, we don't necessarily can always save the house. We save everything around it,
4: mm-hmm.
3: right? <clears throat> you have so many great architectural monumental houses
6: here absolutely
3: how are the fire codes
6: uh the state and the city do a do a great job of keeping them up the code they're all monitored with alarm systems so the early notification in the town being so small we're able to we're able to get to all the locations fairly quickly well the so key is response time the key is definitely response time
3: you know it's interesting we we up in lake tahoe beautiful location and I asked the fire chief there about the codes, and there's an interesting loophole which my audience needs to know. And that is anybody building a new hotel now, of course, has to obey and be part of the new codes. Mm-hmm. If you redo a hotel, anytime you're doing any kind of reconstruction, you have to bring it up to code. There's a loophole though in California, and the loophole is if your grandfather owned the hotel and then your father and now you and you've never changed ownership and you're not redoing the hotel you don't have to retrofit and that's a real danger
6: oh yeah absolutely
3: you don't have that problem here
6: we don't have that problem here now the houses get converted from single family homes to bed and breakfasts and they have to as they change the occupancy happens, they yeah. have to update the code to the like the old transoms above the windows which were a, which were a big victorian feature are not allowed with a multiple occupancy dwelling like that for fire spread. and
3: Exactly. The other thing that, whether you're a traveler or never leave home, Mm -hmm. we've now seen changes in the law, and by the way, very welcome changes in terms of smoke detectors. Yes. You know, the old days, you go down to the Ace Hardware store and buy a battery-powered smoke detector, and, of course, then the battery would die, Mm -hmm. and your smoke detector was basically unusable, or... In the old days, when hotels had to perform the fire codes, and they'd put in the battery-powered smoke detectors, the real frustrating thing was that guests would steal the batteries, batteries yeah. and or they wouldn't redo the batteries. Now they're hard—they're either hardwired, or they're coming sealed. Sealed with like with a ten-year battery, battery, right? Which is great. Which is great. Are you part of a program where you're distributing those detectors?
6: We do have a program through the uh, county fire marshal as well as the Red Cross, where we have detectors. To give out if needed we carry them on the apparatus so if we go to a building for an alarm and the detector is either not functional or has been disrepair we could we have one we can temporarily put in there till the owners can make the proper changes we're
3: talking to rick lundholm deputy fire chief here in cape may now i got to talk about the obvious question you've been here 31 years mm-hmm. where do you like to go for breakfast
6: you know there, there's so many good places in cape may to name one
3: i'm gonna make you name one
6: i, I I know that people seem to rave about the Mad Batter on a block over on Jackson Street. Um, that seems to be one of the more popular ones, but there's a ton of them. There's a lot of Where great do you places go? to eat. I don't really go out to eat for breakfast. Uh, by I'm the way, this is radio. I'm looking at this guy. He eats. Yeah. Lunch. It, it depends on what on what you're after. Um, good, you know. There's like I said, there's so many good places to eat in Cape May. To, to name a few, as a city employee, I don't really think that's fair so you can definitely now he's throwing politics yeah um there's definitely a great variety from you know a beer and a burger to a sit-down meal to appetizers outside there's you can definitely meet your fancy here in cape may
3: are you cooking at the department no no cooking in the house
6: i'm not we have some excellent cooks but i'm not one of them
3: what are you eating at the house
6: it depends on the guys working everybody's got their own specialty we're right next door to the acme supermarket so we're how convenient it's very convenient how convenient come up with a meal pretty quickly and we have a grill and we have a nice commercial grade kitchen so it works out pretty well
3: what's your biggest challenge here
6: our biggest challenge in cape may is um well first of all the size of the buildings the wood structures they're close together like you said the wind um Firefighters visit our firehouse all the time, and they all say the same thing. How do you do it in Cape May with these structures? Um, we have you know, decreasing members in the volunteer department. We're limited staffing on duty.
3: How many full-time members do you have?
6: We have 17, and we have up to six. 17 long- paid. 17 paid total. And, and those, then volunteers. There's a handful of volunteers left. Three or four guys are capable of actually firefighting. Um, when I joined in 1988, there were 50 with a waiting list. And due to the the change in Cape May of, um, you know, the number, there's not as many people living in Cape May, so those numbers went down. By the way, you're not
3: alone. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges of volunteer fire departments in the world is recruiting. Right. And yet, 74% of all firefighters in America are volunteer. Right. Amazing, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're coming to Cape May or you're living here, go volunteer. Yeah. Just take the test.
6: And then we're, we're, you know, we're not surrounded. We're surrounded by water, so our mutual aid is only one direction. It's not like we can call from all four sides because we just don't have that. We have some great companies that we work with, but the more help we need, the further away we have to go. I wish
2: that I could fly the, sky. the charge for looking at this pamphlet is three dollars. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is four
7: dollars.
0: You know, Do growing up in New York, I, un- I never understood New Jersey. Um, for me, all I ever saw were refineries on the Jersey Turnpike. So I had no appreciation that it was called the Garden State. And even crazier, I had no appreciation that it had the Jersey Shore and it had an amazing coast on the Atlantic. Until uh, once, my dad, when I was when I was maybe seven years old, was going to a convention of the American Medical Association. He was a doctor and took me to Atlantic City. And when I was in Atlantic City, I got a chance to see the boardwalk and Mr. Peanut and the saltwater taffy. And yes, the horse, the famous horse that would jump in. Actually, it was called the diving horse. Let's be honest, the horse didn't dive. They dropped like a trap door and the horse just fell into the water. It was terrible. Thank God the horse is gone. But, resting comfortably, I hope. But. Bottom line is, there's more to the Jersey Shore than just Atlantic City, and that's where Kate May comes in. And joining me now, the travel editor for Coastal Living Magazine, our good pal Tracy Minkin. How are you?
8: I'm great, Peter. Good to be with you.
0: I mean, I know there's an East Coast bias when you think about it, but where we are right now has got such great history. Presidents, celebrities, this is where people really came to summer.
8: It was the beginning of the leisure movement, really, Peter, after the Industrial Revolution, that great creation of wealth, the aristocracy of America, the the, you know, the robber barons, the titans of industry, took to the shore because it was cooler. And all of a sudden, that was fashionable, to rest, to pause, and to take the waters, really. And that's when we had this explosion of beautiful late 1800s architecture along the beaches. And Cape May is one of the most exquisite examples of this phenomenon to this day.
0: And they preserve the architecture.
8: That's the difference in Cape May, I think you find. There is more of a concentration of colorful Victorian architecture and the, or the resonance of a beautiful bygone era. And yet, it's a marvelous place to vacation now. Beautiful hotels, great restaurants, and gorgeous beaches. And
0: you can walk it.
8: It's very walkable. It's, it's, everyone's walking. I love Cape May for that reason. You know, where they're on bicycles or they're, you know, there's some little horse-drawn things that go on in the Cape May neighborhoods in the historic district. It's so colorful. I mean, you cannot believe it's 2019. It's absolutely glorious.
0: And the, the reason why I knew I loved it when I first came, might surprise you, uh, on, the, on the porch of, of the Congress Hall, what do they have? It's just like Mackinac Island, right? Rocking chairs. It's very I, much like Mackinac. I, oh my God! Except Mackinac doesn't have cars. Yes. Actually, but 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 at Congress Hall. And there are people just sitting for the afternoon, reading, talking, having conversations, or or in my case, sleeping in the rocking chair. I mean, that's really you what you long for
8: that's so true it is really what we need more than ever in this crazy distracted era and i think people travelers are realizing this and they're they're enjoying exactly what you're saying peaceful time phones put away books out watching the world go by and also i think especially kate may you smell that salt air and there is nothing more relaxing there is no greater tonic You don't even need a gin and tonic, although I think you can get them on the porch at Congress Hall. I think you can, yes. Um, Nothing wrong with that. But, yeah, to smell that salt air and just everything drifts away, it's wonderful.
0: Now, I know that people are, you know, here we are in the middle of summer, but I'm a huge fan of the off-season. I'm a huge fan of the times of the year that nobody goes there, Um, and that's when I want to go. You know, the last thing I want to do is be in Santorini in July. You know, it's just like, why would you do that to yourself? And for me, whether it's the East Coast of the United States, where we are now, or even in the Mediterranean, the magic month is September. Oh. It is beyond compare.
8: There's nothing better than what we, we like to call the shoulder season. Um, well, actually, not, that
0: to me, that's not even the shoulder season. Yeah. That, to me, is the secret summer month. That is where the weather is still great. Kids are back in school, so there's no screaming in the hallway. <laughs> and... You get a chance to enjoy it, and the air is so much better. Um, Now, that's just September. I'm a little crazier. Look, I live out on Fire Island in New York, and everybody out there is like, you know, Memorial Day to Labor Day. Why? Mm. No, I'm out there in March, April, May, and June. I mean, tremendous, right? And then the day after Labor Day is what we call Tumbleweed Tuesday, all the crazies have left, and the island or the shore, in the case of Cape May, returns to the people who actually live there.
8: Absolutely. I grew up in a beach town in California, and we felt the same way. You know, we were glad to have those tourists. We were happy to have their money. And then we, we happily waved goodbye when Labor Day came and went.
0: But, you know, the off-season is a myth. It was started by a group of escaped Garmentos in New York who were freezing their you-know-whats off in February saying, let's go to the Caribbean. Like, why wouldn't you go to the Caribbean in June? I mean, that's when I'd go. Um, you know, especially if you go in the south of the hurricane belt, you go June, July, August, September, not a problem. But people don't think that way.
8: They and- get nervous. They get nervous. And and yet I agree with you. I think these are all beautiful months in the Caribbean. Um, and I love to travel there. You know, it's it's often a wetter season. But, you, you know, we know this, the storm kind of kicks up, blows across and the sun's back out. It's also a great time to get good deals in the Caribbean. So you can enjoy right. places. And that- the
0: same thing applies to New Jersey. If you want to come to Cape May after Labor Day, you own it.
8: Yeah, it's beautiful. I also want to say one of the things I love about Cape May in both the spring and the fall is its migratory bird season. And yeah. Cape May is right, that is the first point those birds hit when they're coming up the flyway. And that is the fall. And they are all nesting and resting and eating and mating. And it's so beautiful and thrilling. And there's some great bird watching. Oh, and I refuges. know. Earlier in the
0: show, we talked to the, the observatory folks. And I'm telling you, I'm not a birder, but I can appreciate it. Right. I mean, I mean, so many of them, I can't even identify. them.
8: Oh, yeah. And you don't. And the beauty of it is I'm not a birder either, but I love birds. And, you know, being on the coast, I see a real variety of them and they're just fun to watch. And it's kind of thrilling to think about this movement of animals, baby little tiny songbirds flying thousands of miles from South America dropping down at Cape May to take a break. And so to be a part of that in the fall is, I think, an unexpected reward of traveling to Cape May in the fall.
0: I'm going to say something that's going to sound so corny, but it's true. Where I live on Fire Island, you know, you watch the birds start moving in September and they're moving, you know, they're heading south. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: However, every year in May and every year in September, without exception, the three swans come back right? And they come right to my dock. It's sort of like, I haven't named them yet. I could, but I mean, they come right back to the dock and you, and, and they're completely friendly and they're completely, and you know they're not going to hurt you. I mean, they don't really have teeth in their beak. So you, you, you can feed them little pieces of bread as they love it. And, but it's like, you can tell time by them.
8: Isn't that amazing? It's part of, it really is being part of something very big when you, when you tune in to what's happening with the migration of birds or other animals. And that's one of the beauties of being at the shore as we are today, you know, in New Jersey. And yeah, you see, they're like friends. It's very magical to see that.
0: We're talking to Tracy Minkin, the travel editor for Coastal Living Magazine. The other thing I love about places like Cape May is you use them as a hub you can go maybe 30 miles that's all you have to do in other smaller communities along the coast right and amazing antiquing
8: great antiquing i mean these are places these are places with deep history some of these towns they were developed long ago and so there's this there there's a trove coming out of the homes over time and so you can really find treasures Anywhere up and down the Jersey Shore, and I agree with you. You know, I grew up in California watching um, Jersey Shore on TV, and that was my misconception. I'm so sorry to hear that. I know, me too. We have a situation. We do yeah. the situation. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. But what a ridiculously misleading image, um, because these towns are spectacular, beautiful. You know, there charming. are two. There are
0: two shows that really angered me. One was that one. And the other one, they tried to do a similar take on that with with a group of kids on Fire Island. And the people who lived there were going, what is this? This is not how we live. It was completely contrived. It was completely fabricated. And it created a a, sort of a desire for other crazy idiots to come. So another reason why we love September.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just thought I'd mention that. It's like,
0: (laughs) bye-bye. Come again when you have less time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but as a traveler, that's when you take advantage of that.
8: It's a beautiful time to travel. I agree. Um, I love going. It, again, growing up at the beach, September is one of the most beautiful times. And
0: for October, my subtexture October is, you got a problem with a sweater? I don't. If you are continuing on
9: to another Southwest
8: destination, please make sure that you
4: check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care.
3: I remember being in Los Angeles working for Newsweek. And I, of course, was west of the Hudson River, way out there on the West Coast. And I remember all my editors making the claim that there was no culture west of the Hudson (laughs) and that they just didn't believe in it. There was no theater west of the Hudson. There were no arts west of the Hudson. Well, of course, it was very easy to prove them wrong. It wasn't that easy, though, to change the perception. And here we are in Cape May, New Jersey, And the question is, are there arts? And the answer is, yes, there are. And joining me now is Susan Krzyakty from the Center for the Arts and Humanities called MAC, Mid-Atlantic Center.
2: You got it. That's right. Mid-Atlantic Center for the Arts and Humanities.
3: Right. So tell me what you guys are doing.
2: Well, you know, MAC for short, that's what we call ourselves, and I think everyone around town and and beyond seems to know us that way, MAC. Um, We're a not-for-profit organization. We've been in existence since 1970. We so were, nearly 50 years. We are celebrating our 50th anniversary in 2020 with some hoopla for sure. Not hoopla. <laughs> there's hoopla? There will be hoopla. Yeah. But there's also a lot of um, really serious work, too, looking into our history and sort of documenting what, how this organization came to be, what its role in Cape May has been over these last 50 years almost. And well, let's, actually, go back, let's go back yeah. to the
3: beginning. 1970,
2: right? Exactly, yeah.
3: Who started it and how did you get it done considering that you'd never done it before?
2: Right. Well, it was a changing time in Cape May during that period. So, the late 60s into the or into 1970, uh, change was definitely in the air. There was a lot of interesting political dynamics going on as far as what direction the, ca- the city was going to be going. Um, there was a group of volunteers, people who were passionate about historic preservation. And those that group uh, began to see some things happening in the town that they didn't like that were unsettling, you know, buildings being <clears throat> demolished. the
3: architecture.
2: Things not being really maintained. And this was a young group of dynamic people who were in their 20s, some in 30s. I mean, 30s. for people who
3: have not been to Cape May, where we are right now, within walking distance, you have preserved architecture
2: and history that is amazing. It is amazing. People come here from all over the country just to see it because of that. You know, this has been a real engine of the economy, um, the preservation ethic here. We've been doing that since um, 1970, really. It was a turning point, really, in the city's direction. We we went toward historic preservation. We did it a little slyly. On, there's a g- lot of great stories about that.
1: You,
3: you know? had to do it slyly. <laughs> no, you know what? Yeah. If you go back to 1970, looking at it just from construction and development, They were t- it wasn't just Cape May. They were tearing down buildings and putting up really ugly, you know, 1970s type buildings that didn't add anything to the, forgetting the ambiance, anything to the history, to the feel, to, to maintaining a culture.
2: Exactly. And that's what Kate May was facing as well. And thanks to this really dynamic and committed and... Uh, young group of people at the time. These were volunteers um, that ended up becoming and founding our organization. These are people who decided that they'd had enough and that they wanted to save a historic site in town that was very precious to them, um, the 1879 Emlyn Physic Estate which exists today and which is, in fact, the center now of our organization. So we owe our, you know, we owe a great deal of credit to these folks who decided that this was really important to save. It's a, a unique stick-style Victorian architecture building um, designed by Frank Furness, one of the great American architects.
3: You know, when you think about it, travel is nothing without storytelling. When you can tell stories and let people see living history, you've made an impact.
2: We hope so. And that's our goal. That's part of our mission. You know, uh, the organization has been in existence now, as I said, for almost 50 years. And that is what we love to do. We love to tell the stories that Cape May holds that is that are waiting to be told to people who come here, not expecting really to take a trolley tour necessarily, or maybe not even expecting to find a a world class, you know, wonderful museum, uh, you know, perfectly preserved and maintained by a passionate group of historic preservationists and and folks here. So it's a great thing to see people sort of surprised to come to Cape May, maybe. Although I have to say that our reputation really has preceded us now over these last uh, dozen or so years since 1970. uh, More than a dozen years. (laughs) Susan, I would suspect
3: that when you had that victory of preserving that mansion, it was a role model for everybody else in the community to stop and say wait a minute let's preserve this too.
2: I think so. what That's exactly right and what happened too is a little bit of a shift in the political winds. Um, our, one of our founders Bruce Minnix actually was elected um, to city council became our mayor. That didn't hurt. That did not hurt and uh, his followers there were many of them uh, were were all of a sudden, this huge shift in the winds happened. All of a sudden, the town became, and there was a lot of infighting. There was a lot of disgruntled people about this process. But in the end, the historic preservationists won. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Bruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go
0: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial.
3: When you think about it, and I do all the time, name the states in America that don't make one. There's one. North Dakota. Every other state does, and I'm always constantly surprised by the quality of wine that you'll find in states that you would normally not associate winemaking with. One in particular, don't laugh, Wisconsin. They make some great wine. America's Dairyland is also quite cold, but somehow they figure out a way to do it. And they've done the same thing here in New Jersey. And joining me now, the winemaker from the Cape May Winery. Excuse my voice. Darren Hesington, how are you, sir? Good, good. How are you tonight? Maybe I need some wine.
7: That, we, can, we can set you up. I bet you can. <laughs> I mean,
3: I'm sure you, have, you heard my introduction about surprising wine locations. I would say Cape may would be one of them.
7: Yes, it is. It is. I think New Jersey in general wasn't a really popular wine state, but in the 80s we had a Farm Wine Act that really got things going. And what was that act? Um, it just allowed small farms to produce grapes and, and make wine. Limited production. Yes. And now it expanded to a a full-blown. You can have a farm winery. You can have a plenary winery. So we're a full-blown wine industry now in New Jersey. And how does the climate here lend itself to that? It's a little cooler climate. It's it's not California for sure. But um, the nice thing about Cape May is we're moderated by the ocean and the bay. So we have a very long growing season. We're cool going in and we're long extended going out.
3: Now, for example, if I went to Oregon, they would tell me we do Pinot Noir here because we're on the coast Mm -hmm. and you've got that constant sea breeze coming in is that the same situation here
7: yes it is I mean we do Pinot Noir but we're also more heavily into the vinifers we can do Chardonnay Cabernet Rieslings
3: is there a wine you don't do
7: um Syrah didn't work out very well (laughs) or Zinfandel but you tried it (laughs) we tried it yeah yeah we think we can grow anything but we learned that we can't grow everything but since we have a long moderated season so what's your biggest
3: challenge growing the stuff you're doing now?
7: Um, weather, rain in particular. I mean, last year and today, it's, the, the rain is tough in New Jersey. Grapes don't like it real wet, um, but we're fortunate here in Cape May. It's a sandy soil, so the rain drains out quickly.
3: So that changes your harvest season then, does it?
7: Yes, yes. You're, you know, when you're going to harvest, <clears throat> you're looking at the sugars in the grapes, which we call bricks. If you're at 23 bricks and you want to harvest and it rains...
3: Wait, wait, stop right there. What's 23 bricks?
7: 23 bricks is the amount of sugar in the wine. It's basically 23% sugar in in the wine, which in the wine industry, we call the sugar bricks. And is 23% the optimal? It's it's the beginning of the optimal. And that's what you sort of shoot for, because grape berry development, that's when they're ripe. So if it rains... The water will suck up into those grapes, lowering those sugars to so you gotta three, wait, three, four percent, and it okay. takes three or four days to get out. So we're always looking at a window to harvest.
3: And then once that window happens, you better get out there fast.
7: Yes, yes, very fast. And
3: how do you do that? Put the well, knee, we, we put the knee pads on. And fortu-
7: get- yeah, we all we all go out, and fortunately, we have um, friends and other businesses in the fall that. Um, a nursery um, taco nurseries that their guys are looking for some work in the fall because they're slowing down and we can grab their crew and come in and get it done very quickly and if you were to put some knee pads
3: on me with a basket how many grapes am I picking
7: um, we're gonna pick in, in a block we're gonna pick anywhere from um, anywhere from three tons at a minimum probably up to ten tons a day. How, how big are you guys we're, we're 26 acres we do about 40,000 gallons of wine a year which sounds big, but small. But it's not. No, now for for New Jersey, it's it's big, but not for. Now have they changed the
3: laws? I think they did it in some states where you can ship the wine. Yes,
7: yes, shipping shipping is all open now, in New Jersey. But you have to register in each state. And we're fortunate; we sell 100 percent retail at our wine shop, so we don't we don't really wholesale. Everybody comes to us, so it's. it's so a you're not shipping win. a lot. No, <laughs> no. It's cash and carry. Yeah, cash and carry. I love it.
3: And your biggest selling wine.
7: Um, we, we sell pretty much everything, but we're, we're probably known for like our Chardonnays, our Cabernets, more the classic vinifras. but we, we, our philosophy at Gate May Winery is have something for everybody.
3: And of course you have a tasting room.
7: Yes. Beautiful, beautiful tasting room. And of you can really get lost. You can come over, sit down. You won't even realize you're in New Jersey. Is that your branding? Yeah. <laughs>
3: you won't realize you're in
7: New Jersey. Yeah. Well, that's you. You won't. I mean, we like New Jersey. But you, people always say they sit there and they just lose track of where you're at.
3: That's what's called designated driver.
7: <laughs> well, that's a good thing.
2: Yeah. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is
4: the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
3: When I was growing up in New York, every time I went on the New Jersey Turnpike, I thought there were just refineries. That's all I saw. Of course, we all know that New Jersey is called the Garden State. And then, of course, later, if you watch The Sopranos, you'd once again think it was refineries and murder. But it really is the Garden State. And one of the pioneers in farm-to-table and joining me now, the general manager of the Beach Plum Farm, Christina Albert. How are you? Hi, how are you? So you guys have been doing farm-to-table since day one.
9: We have, so from 2007 when we were founded, uh, we originally founded to supply produce to Congress Hall, and that was part of its history when it was originally founded back in 1816, and we revitalized that back in 2007. Uh, Originally not open to the public, but we are featured on the menus here, and guests started to be curious and wanted to come out and take a peek for themselves.
3: They wanted to know where it came from.
9: They wanted to see it from the table. what
3: What were you growing out there?
9: We were growing produce, so vegetables and herbs. and like, then like? Like lettuce, kale, kohlrabi, radishes, chives, asparagus.
3: So you were growing kale before kale became cool.
9: Yes, that's right. <laughs> and then we added uh, eggs and meat to our repertoire and started sending that to the restaurants as well.
3: When you said you added meat to the repertoire, that means you're raising cattle.
9: We are raising, not cattle, we are raising pigs, ducks, turkeys... For our meat.
3: So the bacon here at Congress Hall is coming from you? Yes. So you're curing it all there too?
9: We have a processor that cures it for us, a, a local butcher, and he is also making us salamis, ribs, brats, breakfast sausage, whatever he can get out of that hog we're, we're getting.
3: Whatever you can get out of the hog. That's There's branding right. for you. Yeah. I love it.
9: <laughs> The whole hog, if you and will. And
3: poultry as well.
9: And poultry as well. So turkeys for Thanksgiving, Uh, Chicken for your barbecue.
3: So essentially, you are the main distributor for the hotel.
9: We try to be. We try and get as much out of that little farm as we can.
3: And how big is the farm?
9: It's 62 acres on our main campus, and then we lease land around. Uh, We have another 12 right down the road, another 11 over here. So we piece it all together, and what that has done is preserved a lot of land for agricultural purposes. So the tripod of the economy down here historically has been fishing, tourism, and agriculture. Fishing and tourism have remained strong in this 300-year history. And not so much for agriculture. And not so much for agriculture. A lot of family farms disappearing. Yes, they did. And so we're part of that renaissance of agriculture here in Cape May. Put
3: this in perspective for me. 62 acres is not that big.
9: Not in the scope. Just maybe an hour up the road, there are 1,000-acre farms um, pumping out a lot of produce uh, for a lot of uh, commercial entities. So we are small, very small in comparison. But you're also
3: dedicated. I mean, you're not supplying to anybody else.
9: That's right. So keep it all in-house. We also have our own market at our own, on our main campus. And we also have a farm kitchen.
3: Now, I'm going to ask a really stupid question. Can people come out and pet the pigs?
9: No, but they can (laughs) certainly come out and look at the pigs. Uh, They are ornery uh, little suckers sometimes. Because they know what's about to happen. (laughs) Maybe. uh, They're very strong and very fast, and uh, nothing will build a team faster than trying to load a pig up a ramp. But uh, certainly can come out and feed the chickens. And now we have our guests have the opportunity to stay on our farm. We just added five new cottages. So you're
3: doing overnights.
9: We can do overnights. So 1.8 miles from the beach, or you can have the farm experience and do everything from harvest eggs in the morning and then bring them home.
3: Now you only started the farm about 12 years ago. Yes, that's right. So what lessons did you learn about sustainable farming?
9: It's very hard. So uh, there are pests that we didn't know still existed in Cape May. Asparagus hadn't been grown in a decade. And then the asparagus beetles certainly knew where to find us as soon as we put that asparagus in the ground.
3: So now the the old school would be pesticides.
9: That's right. But
3: that's not what you're doing.
9: We use all organic uh, pesticides when necessary, but very, very little. We uh, use good crop rotations to keep our pest pressure down. Uh, The weather remains our most formidable opponent and does what it wants. And Trying to uh, work with Mother Nature and not against her is, is always our challenge.
3: Now, I would think, not being the farmer, I mean, I'm the brown thumb, so, <laughs> I mean, don't ever take me to a nursery because <laughs> on the way home, the plants look at me and go, why prolong this? Let's die now. Uh, what did you try to grow that you couldn't?
9: We have tried to grow blueberries. It's a staple of the New Jersey agriculture throughout the state, but for some reason, Kate May is is not where they want to be. So we did try that a couple for a couple years, and then we just uh, moved on. on. Yeah. <laughs> and what
3: what have you thought? Well, this will never happen, and it's growing like you can't believe.
9: I grew uh, this interesting tomato called a husk cherry. It grows like a tomatillo uh, in a little paper husk and something really interesting, very sweet, very unique to the chefs. um, Great, sweet, almost it's called a strawberry tomato. It has spread spread everywhere.
1: On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place.
6: I've been everywhere, man. We're looking i have
3: a great food experience here. There's so many different Boston restaurants. And, Dayton, and I'm a particular fan of coming out of season. But doesn't matter when you come. It's really good. And my next guest knows a little bit about that. Of course, he's not from New Jersey. <laughs> he's from Argentina. But he's been here 15 years. He's the co-founder of Bread and Butter Hospitality. Exactly, and the owner of a number of places, including the Red Store, and his name is Lucas Manteca. How are you, sir?
5: How are you, Peter?
3: Other than my voice, I'm just great.
5: <laughs> I'm great too. Thank you. So, what brought you here? You know, I I left my country when I was really young. I was about 19 years old. Uh, travel cooking was always my passion, so I travel through uh, South and Central America. Um, I opened my first restaurant when I was 20 years old. Where in, in Costa Rica? On um, the way up. Yep, on the way up, and, you know, I, I surfed, so I, I was kind of living the dreams. So you are
3: out by Tamarinda.
5: I was actually more south, closer to uh, Playa Jaco. It was Playa Hermosa. Sure. So I opened my first restaurant there, living the life, you know, surfing and cooking, uh, both of my passion. Um, that's where I met my wife, uh, Dina. In um, she was uh, she uh, she grew up in Avalon, uh, here in the area. So you Avalon, you New met Jersey. a Jersey
3: girl in Costa
5: Rica. I met a Jersey girl in Costa Rica, um, so we spent some time together in Costa Rica, and then moved to the states. So she brought you home. She brought me home. Yes. Are yes. you surfing here? Uh, yes, as much as I can. How's I the do. surf? It's really good.
3: Is the break good?
5: Yeah, it's excellent. It's really? actually yeah, it's a it's a really you know we could have lived uh, or picked any place in the world really to live, um, and we just love it here. It, it kind of gives us a little bit of everything that we you know we look for uh, to have a balanced life.
3: So surfing and cooking.
5: Surfing and cooking, exactly. And some time off in the winter as well, so we can do some traveling.
3: All right, but let's go back 15 years ago when you got here. Mm -hmm. The food was different.
5: The food was different. The restaurant
3: choices were different. Exactly. Everything, I remember 15 years ago, you either had prime rib. Yep. Or it was deep fried.
5: Yeah, exactly. Right? Yep. So um, we were, I went to uh, culinary school in New York, so I spent some time cooking in New York. I went to the French Culinary Institute. Nice so that gave me an opportunity as well to work in europe so it was a shorter um course um so i got to train as well in spain and in england so when i came back uh we kind of wanted to decide you know what's the next step uh my wife uh growing up here you know she thought why don't we give it a shot to the shore so we moved here and um and we kind of test the ground cooking in some of the local restaurants. And, uh, you know, we saw the opportunity coming from the city that we could do something fresh and, you know, and different. Uh, All right.
3: So what is fresh and different that you're doing?
5: So um, we, you know, I, I wouldn't say uh, we were the first, but, um, you know, when we moved here, we opened our first restaurant was Sea Salt in Stone Harbor. Um was a little BYOB. Uh, there were not that many BYOBs at the time. It was either you bring your own, like, but it was not promoted as the fine dining BYOB. So we brought the little bistro. So basically, bistro. You open
3: a place without a liquor license.
5: Without a liquor license, um, I um, I met a farmer in the area um, that he had a piece of land. He was growing organic vegetables. Uh, we got along really well, and we got a deal that he was uh, pretty much putting all the product in the ground and taking care of it. I was doing my own harvest. So we started like the farm to table. Uh, a little bit movement not here but you know on my own um where i'm coming from it's 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 farm to table anyway. by yeah by nature so sure. um so what
3: what was your first dish What do you make?
5: Well, you know, we, and that's as well where we start, we we start doing really simple, fresh food. So um, being from Argentina. Ceviche. Exactly. Big in raw uh, ceviches, even Peruvian dishes like tiraditos, a lot of grilling, beef, fish, and then focusing in vegetables and and embracing, you know, seasonality, you know, and that's, that's the greatest part of being living here is now I can't wait until... June comes because we start getting these like amazing products and the season takes you through you know we start with strawberries and blueberries and fava beans and peas and arugulas and then we move into the lettuces and tomatoes and so it's it's almost it's 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 fascinating it's uh you know we change at the red store we change the menu uh, every two weeks and it makes it so much fun i I can't stand to keep a menu you know longer than than a few weeks. So,
3: do you have a signature dish?
5: You know, that's that's uh, that's a question that I always answer. Um, it's I I don't. We create every single dish. I guess
3: the question is: Is there one dish that never leaves the menu? No, it's no. all new.
5: It's all new. It's on wow. you, and, and I think that it's challenging uh, but it's very exciting um, and we find as well so at the Red Store we do for dinner you come in and we have something that calls the, uh, the no-menu chef tasting. So you sit down, you have no menu, you get eight courses and the server explains you what you're eating. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you
10: ride?
5: It's not
10: that he can't ride.
5: How is it you put it home?
1: They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. How do I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs?
3: People don't realize what a great seacoast New Jersey has. And they don't realize all the wildlife and the sea life that's here. My next guest does. His family's been in this business since day one. He operates... Amazing whale-watching trips. That's right, whale-watching in New Jersey. And we're not talking about casino gamblers. His name is Captain Jeff Stewart. Welcome to the show.
11: Thank you, Peter. Good morning.
3: You've been doing this all your life. Your family's been doing it. When's the best time of the year? It might surprise people to go whale-watching in New Jersey.
11: Uh, The absolute best time? Probably in the winter when nobody wants to go. That's a
3: surprise, but nobody wants to go. I'm a big contrarian traveler. I would suit up and go, because that's when, they're, that's when the whales are here.
11: We, we see them throughout our season, fortunately. Uh, we, we start in March, we go to December, and we see them throughout that time. And it, it's, there's a peak to it every year. Uh, this spring, for instance, has been excellent.
3: What kind of whales are we talking about? Mostly humpbacks,
11: but we also see fin whales. Uh, we occasionally see a very rare right whale.
3: No, no minkeys.
11: Every uh, August, we have a good chance about seeing a Mickey. Really? Yeah.
3: And how close did they come?
11: The humpbacks this spring have been right along the coast here, I mean, within a mile of the beach. Uh, the best trip out this spring, we had six humpback whales, and they were right around Cape May Inlet, nothing more than a mile from the beach. And where are they going? They are migratory. Uh, they are migrating uh through this area sometimes uh there are many that call the mid-atlantic grounds their feeding grounds though so areas from virginia up through new york they're here and they're going to be here throughout the summertime feeding two, because, of, because of the bait fisher. yep two thousand pounds of fish a day per whale per whale that's serious that's a lot of bait what kind of fish around here the primary staple is menhaden which or is what bunker uh, it's a small oily fish around three to nine inches long silver in color uh a lot of places, they call it Menhaden. Uh, it's, a, it's a base fish. Lots of things eat it. Bluefish eat it. Stripers eat it. The dolphins eat it. The humpbacks a lot. I mean, it.
3: as a fisherman, I know to follow the bait fish. When you see the bait fish start to jump out of the water, you know somebody's feeding.
11: Absolutely. Uh, a lot of times uh, when people are fishing for stripers or bluefish, it'll coincide with humpback whales in the area.
3: Now, changing gear here for a second, how is your striped bass season?
11: Striped bass, uh, they're doing fine with them uh, along the beaches down here. Uh, we don't surf casting. Yeah, surf casting. I, I saw a couple of 20 pounders caught the other day right over North Cape May, so it's been it's been a good spring for them too.
3: And of course, the bluefish don't really come until August, right?
11: Uh, they're here now. Really? Uh, yep. A friend of mine just caught a good 31 incher the other day. So,
3: of course, I grew up catching snappers.
11: Yep. The baby
3: bluefish. Yep. With a little white, red, and white bobber.
11: Sure. Yep, that, 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 that August, September, October, we, we do very well in the uh, Cape May Rips. When
3: you go out whale watching, what's been the biggest surprise for your visitors?
11: The biggest surprise for our visitors? What they're not
3: expecting to see.
11: Well, in addition to whales and dolphins, we see a variety of marine life. I mean, we, we, uh, we had a great couple of great trips last year with uh, loggerhead sea turtles. We see mola mola, which is uh, ocean sunfish. They can be up to 3,000 pounds. And they really
3: are close to the surface. Aren't the, they?
11: they 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 get that nickname sunfish because they sun themselves up towards the surface. It's the weirdest looking fish in the sea.
3: And quite frankly, I'm not surprised. I mean, I am surprised to see that they're in New Jersey.
11: We we get them as the water warms. We'll see them for the most part. So July, August, into September, are your best bet to see a mola mola.
3: And you mentioned the dolphins. They love to play with the boat.
11: They do uh, on occasion. I mean, they are wild animals in their natural habitat uh sometimes they will surf in the wake back behind the boat sometimes they'll just eat sometimes they're even just sleeping
3: (laughs) but the bottom line going back to december if you're a smart traveler and you don't mind doing the layered look i I know your boats are heated but if that's the best one of the best times to see the whales tough it out and go do it
11: well it's a combination of not just the cold uh it's the weather it's uh the winds being 25 mile an hour or greater it makes it daunting to get out there and have good sighting conditions. But if you have a calm day, and it coincides with the weekend, you can see a lot of whales. And tell me more about your boats. Uh, We've got the largest boats in the state that do this. Uh, 110 feet long on the one boat, 125 feet on the other, Uh, certified by the United States Coast Guard for up to 400 passengers on the largest. Uh, There are two decks, 200 passengers on the upper deck, 200 passengers on the lower deck, Air conditioned, heated, two bars, up and down.
3: So you save the best for last. Two bars. <laughs>
11: Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly. My next guest fly away. calls
3: himself a local boy. Local meaning he grew up in Atlantic City, so he remembers Mr. Peanut. He remembers the uh, the b- b- Blue Rolling Chairs and, of course, Saltwater Taffy. He's now the Executive Director for the whole state, the New Jersey Division of Travel and Tourism. Jeffrey Voster, how are you?
10: Great. Good to see you, Peter.
3: Uh, we first saw each other about seven years ago in Atlantic City at the then Revel, which turned into a huge white elephant, went bankrupt. Atlantic City was always in such trouble for 25 years. But what's remarkable about Atlantic City is you keep reinventing yourself. And that former hotel casino has now been reopened and they're actually making money now.
10: They are. They're called the Ocean Resort now. But you're you're right and I think you can write a book just on how Atlantic City has reinvented itself over the years in the 160 170 years it's been a tourism destination. It has had ups and downs. Um, most recently, the biggest one is when it passed casino gambling in 1976. It gave it a new life. And then it was down again, and now it's coming back. But
3: not necessarily just driven by casino gambling.
10: That's right. Um, Atlantic City has tried to focus in the past 10 years, 15 years on being more of a retail dining entertainment destination. And that's what we're trying to do as a whole state. People know us as an iconic Jersey Shore, but there's so much more to do, so much more to see, that people frankly don't know about. And, uh, you know, when I was running the Atlantic City Convention Bureau, you know, I was focused just on Atlantic City and getting that message out. So now you've, you've been educated as well. Exactly. Now we can talk about the entire state and what it has to offer.
3: You know, I grew up in New York, and I didn't know much about New Jersey. Every time I came across the bridge, I'd be passing refineries. And that's what I thought New Jersey was. Your whole branding should actually be, this is New Jersey, because people don't know.
10: Well, it's funny. What, growing up as a kid in the Atlantic City area, every time I went through North Jersey, it was through the Turnpike, and it was just right. the oil refineries. It wasn't until you know I was an adult and moved to North Jersey for a dozen years or so, I saw the beautiful communities that they have.
3: You know what else I remember? Howard Johnson's. Sure. 31 flavors, right? But if you timed it right with Howard Johnson's, and you were driving through the turnpike on a Friday, they had the fish fry. Right. You remember that? Right, sure.
10: Fried clams. Fried clams. That was it. Yeah.
3: Hey, back to Atlantic City. I wanted to dispel a myth, because when I was growing up, not only did they have the boardwalk, which was great, they had the diving horse. You would think this was like Esther
10: Williams as a horse. Hmm. The horse didn't dive, did it, Jeffrey? No, it didn't. And uh, I I was shocked as a kid. The first time I went and was waiting to see this horse gallop and then take a big jump and dive into the pool. And as it turns out, they pull the platform from underneath it and it falls into the pool. So um, it was a it, plopping horse. It was a plopping horse. <laughs> but it it just speaks to, you know, the, the popular culture that Atlantic City represented back, you know, in its heyday in the 20s and 30s and you know, if people saw the Boardwalk Empire TV show, it you know, people look back on those times as very romantic as Prohibition, you know, was uh, was flaunted, you know, in Atlantic City.
3: Now, speaking about romance and history, here we are in Cape May, a city that's maintained its history.
10: It has. And I think Cape May is um, doing exactly what we're trying to do as a state. And we're trying to model ourselves after Cape May, which has always been known as a beautiful beach town beautiful Victorian architecture, wonderful restaurants, but they're trying to talk about, you know, what you can do in the off season and it's about the wineries, it's about the shopping, it's about the breweries that we have here. And I I know you had someone from Cape May Winery here uh, earlier in your show. Um, I was there last year, and you sit and have a glass of wine and, and a platter of, uh, of sausages and meats in the winery, and it just takes you to a whole nother place. Um, it's hard to believe that you're in New Jersey. So we're trying to get that message out, and Kate May has just done a fantastic well, you, job. You
3: mentioned two of my favorite words, or maybe one if you use the hyphen, off-season. I'm a huge fan of the off-season globally. Mm-hmm. I think the off-season's a myth. I mean, I don't want to go to Paris in July. I certainly don't want to go to Venice in August. I want to go in February, right? Right. Because I'm not going there to get a suntan. I'm going there to have an experience.
10: Well, let's start with the Jersey Shore. Um, on Labor Day, room rates drop in half. Um, and September, by the way, is the magic month on the entire eastern coast. I was I was going to say just that. It's it's the most beautiful month for the beach, and roommates, room rates drop. So if you go in September and even into early October um, – we become value, uh, as opposed to a Saturday night in August, where you're going to be paying peak rate. Um, once Labor Day hits, rates drop. You can get a parking spot on the street. You can get a, a restaurant reservation, um, and then you just take that into the rest of the state, where you can start talking about going to um, the farms and and you know the things that you can do in the fall. You know apple picking and pumpkin picking, and the farms have become. tourist destination unto themselves these days
3: well people have figured it out right you know you ask kids where food comes from they tell you the store not good enough
10: (laughs) right and I don't have to tell you but you know one of the biggest things now is that whole farm to table movement and restaurants especially down in Cape May um a lot of our restaurants yeah
2: You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
8: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast